Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me today a very special guest, Dr. Todd Dorman, who is Professor of Anesthesiology here at Johns Hopkins. He's also our Vice Chair for Critical Care and the immediate past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Dorman, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Jed. It's wonderful to be here. So I uh, was a fellow under the tutelage of Dr. Dorman, and uh, among many things that I learned, one was uh, really some interesting stuff about the difference between systolic and diastolic heart failure and kind of how to manage that, uh, how to think about it and how to manage it in the ICU. And so I wanted to uh, see if I could convince Dr. Dorman to come in and talk about that for our listeners. So he has agreed, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's launch right in. And Dr. Dorman, maybe could you tell me a little bit about uh, how we talk about these things, the terminology, because it's kind of changed a bit. And when we say systolic and diastolic heart failure, maybe that's not uh, all that people will hear. So how, what do we hear and how should we think about it? Yeah, thank you, Jed. I think that is a, a great starting point. Um, you know, when I when I trained, we didn't even think much and or know much about diastolic dysfunction. We just talked about heart failure um, globally. And what we typically meant based upon more recent knowledge is systolic dysfunction, a, a heart that couldn't pump. It wasn't until probably somewhere about 20 years ago we began thinking about and learning about hearts that had relaxation um, and or compliance problems, the diastolic side of the equation. And we called them systolic versus diastolic dysfunction for a decade um, or more. People uh, began thinking about those as preserved function, the diastolic side, um, and or reduced function, the systolic side. And that terminology now in the last couple of years has transitioned um, again to um, heart failure preserved ejection fraction and heart failure reduced ejection fraction, commonly said verbally as HFPEF, HFPEF, and HFREF, HF heart failure reduced ejection fraction, um, REF. Um, and that's what you'll see now in the literature is the HFPEF and the HFREF. Okay, so when we think about systolic and diastolic, it's still the same thing. It's just now we're using HFPEF and HFREF to refer to them. So Correct. Why, why do we care? It's all heart failure, right? So is, uh, is there any real difference, and do we need to think about these differently? Yeah, I think this is a critical point. Um, uh, we do need to think about them differently. The sorts of diseases that um, lead to these types of heart failure are profoundly different. Their intermediate and long-term outcomes are very different. Um, Five-year survivals, as an example, are profoundly different between the two disorders. How they present tends to be different. The, the person with um, reduced ejection fraction or systolic dysfunction, that sort of end of the spectrum, right, has progression of pulmonary edema. And so progression is shortness of breath with reduced symptom complexes over a period of time. Whereas the diastolic dysfunction, the preserved ejection fraction state, tends to be cooking along, doing quite fine, and then has an episode of acute decompensation. Um, flash pulmonary edema is a common um, way in which people clinically think about what they see. So knowing the difference becomes very different, and we all need to stop just writing congestive heart failure in our notes and are saying that on rounds or thinking about that when we take care of patients because not only the etiology is different um, and the physiologies are different, but then the treatment strategies are different. And if you get those treatments wrong, then you increase the risk to the patient. Great. And so let me just back up. You mentioned the difference in outcomes in terms of mortality rates, and so some people out there may be wondering which is which has a higher mortality rate, 
Um, and so how do we think about that? So systolic dysfunction has uh, the lower mortality rate or the reduced EF, the HEF-REF, has the lower mortality rate. And at about five years, you're talking about a absolute difference of about 30%. So about 80% in the diastolic uh, um, survivable and in the systolic about 50% at five years. All right. So, so the outcomes are different. The presentation is different, as you said. And so when we think about kind of how to conceptualize these two or what to look for, um, what, what is the main difference between them? We kind of hinted at it with squeezing and not squeezing, but, you know, maybe let's talk more about that. So um, if you think about it, the part of the definition or part of the terminology is reduce or preserve ejection fraction. So wh- why don't we start there with the ejection fraction being stroke volume over end diastolic volume. So it's a ratio. And the most common reason that the EF is either preserved or reduced is because the denominator has changed, especially in a compensated state. Yes, acutely stroke volume, the numerator may be, comp- may be um, impacted, compromised. But um, in the compromise, the, um, in the more chronic state, it's the denominator that has changed. And this gets back to what I think we were all taught back in medical school, which is that volume overloads lead to, to the ventricle dilating and pressure overloads lead to the ventricle hypertrophying. So um, the stroke volume, right, your, your cardiac output would want to stay the same. Your organs want to be perfused. Your organs are going to think about what's your cardiac output, the flow, and what's the perfusion pressure. That's what they care about, right? They don't care what your EF is. Right. So your EF is changing, um, either reducing or, or increasing, right, based upon that diastolic number change. But the stroke volume staying basically the same in a compensated state. So the cardiac outputs are staying basically the same for any given heart rate in a compensated state. So this way you maintain flow, but you end up with profoundly different ejection fractions. And so when you see a lowered ejection fraction, let's just say 30%, your brain should be thinking not that the stroke volume is being compromised or that the cardiac output is being compromised, but you should be thinking that the heart is dilated and it can only push out 30%. Whereas when you're seeing elevated ejection fractions, normal to elevated ejection fractions, you should be thinking about the heart as over-contracting, it's hypertrophied and or over-contracting in a way to try to maintain that stroke volume. Right. And so this, I think, is part of why we can get into trouble when we just look at an EF percentage on an echo report and that you see that all the time where people will sometimes even list in a note EF equals X percent without any other comment. And the uh, I commonly hear the thought being basically the higher the better. So if it's 75%, if it's 80%, then that's a really good heart. But we obviously need to think a little deeper about what's going on with the heart. Correct. And in in fact, I think we will get into in a couple of minutes when we're talking about not diagnosis, but sort of management of these patients. Um, I think it'll become more more clear to the audience about why knowing this difference is really important in, in terms of management strategies. Great. So you, talk, you touched on diagnosis. So obviously, this is something that's a lot in evolution in many ways. But maybe let's just talk briefly about how do we think about diagnosing both traditionally and kind of what, what's been changing recently in terms of diagnosis of heart failure. 
So there are a variety of things you can do that range from, you know, clinical exam into diagnostic exams. Um, and I, I use that phraseology on purpose because we all know the limitation of sort of clinical exams. So if we think back to auscultation that we were taught, you would think about an S4 in a, per- a person who might be hypertrophied, whereas you would think about an S3 gallop in a person who uh, might have a more dilated uh, ventricle. You, you might be seeing is the PMI displaced or is there a heave right, by, by palpation? of the chest. Uh, but the most common diagnostic uh, use in today's world is echocardiography. Right. Um, and on the, on the reduced ejection fraction side, the systolic side of the equation, you see a dilated ventricle. And so the report typically talks about the dilated ventricle, um, some dyskinesia um, or squeeze abnormality that is seen um, and and that's what you know, and, and that's what you'll see in a reduced ejection fraction. They'll quote some thirty, thirty-three percent, twenty percent, whatever the it may be in that particular patient, right? On the diastolic or preserved ejection fraction side of the echo, that's really where a lot of the transition has occurred over the last 10, 20 years. 20 years ago, we used to think about, well, does the report say hypertrophy? Does it say concentric hypertrophy? Does it say cavity obliteration? Maybe it says E to A uh, reversal, which is a a Doppler signal reversal that occurs um, when the ventricle becomes stiffer. Um, that transitioned into people thinking about what are the flow patterns as we got into color Doppler um, capability and started thinking about flow patterns that were different. Uh, that that again that velocity change that would occur because the vesicle receiving the blood, the ventricle is stiffer, so there would be this flow change that would occur. That's now progressed into the most modern definitions. Look at something called E to E prime, where on echo you measure at a tissue level and then at a valve level, and you're looking at the relaxation of those two points and comparing them and then saying what the the difference is. And the larger the difference, then the more or the worse the diastolic dysfunction is in that particular patient. And the echo report will still end up mostly saying the ejection fraction is elevated. You commonly see EFs of 60, 70, and 80% in that sort of uh, scenario. Now, is it accurate to say if you have an echo report that says, okay, the EF is, let's say, 80%, that there are two main reasons. Either the patient is hyperdynamic because they may have a catecholamine surge for some reason. Maybe they're on epinephrine or maybe they just have endogenous catecholamines released for whatever reason. Or they may have diastolic dysfunction. It could be either one. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the present day, you would hope that um, cardiologists are now trained to read with the same criteria so that we would be looking for velocity changes or E to E prime being specifically stated. I guess it's possible that you could also have as a, as a third cause is you could have a cardiologist who trained in an era in which they didn't talk about those things and didn't measure those particular variables, and they're still using how they were trained, something common we all do, um, revert and stay with what we're most comfortable with, right. and still talking about hypertrophy or cavity obliteration or E to A, again, the, the Doppler signal change, right. and not specifically stating. For me, I think whether they're at 80% um, because they're hyperdynamic, because somebody's using other phraseology, or because there's demonstrated diastolic dysfunction, E to E prime um, difference, 
we'll, we'll cover next, I think, does it have an implication for management? And I think you're best managing all of those as though the patient has diastolic dysfunction. You're, you're not likely to get it wrong if you take that tact with the patient. You are likely to get it wrong if you assume the 80% is just hyperdynamic and then you don't manage the patient as though they have another physiologic problem. Right. So much like a patient you suspect might have coronary artery disease, even if you don't know for sure, it's much safer to manage them as if they do than to assume they don't. And similarly here, as we'll talk about in a minute, uh, if you are going to be t- treating a patient as if they have diastolic dysfunction, there's probably very little downside. But if you miss it and don't treat them carefully, then you can get into problems. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think especially if we're talking some of the simpler interventions that would you would do, I, I'm not sure you should be progressing to um, medication intervention in the mm-hmm. patient to treat a specific disorder unless you have a better echo finding. Um, but if, if you're stuck and maybe you don't have the availability of an echo, um, whether it be night, a weekend, particular institution you're in, et cetera, then yeah, I would lean towards trying to treat that patient based upon previous data as though they had severe diastolic dysfunction. Great. So I want to just back up a sec because people may be wondering about the E and the A and and all this. And so some of this you're going to have to look up because you really will be better served by seeing pictures of the Doppler signals if you want to learn more about the E to A and the E E to E prime. But I I think it's probably accurate, uh, and Dr. Dorman, correct me if I'm wrong, but to say at least that part of this is that as a heart gets stiffer, it first will rely more on the atrial contraction to fill the ventricle because the ventricle is stiffer and so there's less passive filling. Uh, And so you start to see differences in terms of the velocities of the blood flow during atrial contraction and during passive filling. Yeah, I mean, uh, let me maybe... I think it's reasonably easy to describe here in an, in an audio world. Sure, that'd be um, great. The, the E to A change, the E to E prime is really something you have to just see on an echo in order to measure the difference of whether the tissue is relaxing or the valve is relaxing and what that ratio is. Right. Uh, And when the atria empties into the ventricle, there is always two signals. And if you recall, there is the passive phase where the valve opens and blood rushes into the ventricle, um, and that's referred to as an E signal on the Doppler. And then there is an A signal that happens. Most of us have the majority of blood leave the atria during the E signal, so the E is larger than the A in terms of the Doppler signal. And then the atria contracts, and you get the rest of that blood, the atrial kick as it's commonly referred to filling the ventricle. Um, And so you have a larger E than an A signal in the normal state. If the ventricle is stiff, when the atria opens, then there's a pressure gradient problem, right, that's inhibiting passive flow of blood. So the E signal still exists, but is reduced because less blood can get out of the atria into the ventricle. And then more blood is left behind. So when the atria contracts, the Doppler signal is increased and you get this previously large E and small a reversed to a smaller E and a larger A signal on the Doppler. Right. Okay. And then am I right that once it progresses even further, it kind of reverts back to a pseudo-normal pattern? So uh, you get actually back to looking similar, not exactly, but similar to how you looked at the beginning. You can, depending upon um, two issues, and that relates to is the ventricle have a relaxation problem or does the ventricle have a compliance problem? Again, even five years ago, we thought all diastolic dysfunction was both of those. 
We now know that the milder forms, you might think of grade one disease, mm-hmm. um, is mostly a relaxation problem. And as you progress up through from grade one through grade four, then you get still relaxation problems that get stiffer. But not only is the relaxation now a problem, that stiffening is now a compliance problem that layers on top of it. Okay. Um, great. All right. So that's uh, kind of the picture with the diagnosis and, and what you may see, both the E to A's we talked about and then the newer idea of looking at E to E prime. So let's talk about now how we will manage patients who we either suspect have diastolic dysfunction or uh, who we know do and, uh, and how that might differ from someone with systolic or um, reduced ejection fraction. So I think there are three, um, or at least three variables to think about. How am I going to manage the heart rate? How am I going to manage the preload? And how am I going to manage the afterload? And then globally, are there medications that can impact um, the particular physiology of the patient? So let's start with preload. It turns out that both diastolic and systolic dysfunction, so both the preserved and the reduced ejection fraction states, require a near-normal preload. This is a common misunderstanding where people think about running people dry, but let's, let's think about this issue for a second. Let's start with the diastolic side or the preserved ejection fraction, right, where, in fact, the ejection fraction tends to be elevated. So the ventricle's hyperdynamic. It's squeezing hard. It's getting near-cavity obliteration, so it's, it's essentially fully emptying. If it's doing that with a normal end-diastolic volume, what happens if you compromise preload? You lower the end-diastolic volume. It doesn't have any extra it can squeeze out. It's already squeezing everything out. So then you begin to compromise stroke volume. And once you compromise stroke volume, you're going to compromise cardiac output and then potentially not only flow but pressure um, as a possibility, right? Um, Or you may have a preserved distal pressure but a reduced flow, and you see this in the elderly commonly, right? Um, On the systolic side or the reduced function side, remember the heart would like to keep the stroke volume normal if possible in a compensated state so that flow, cardiac output, is staying relatively normal. And the problem is the the ventricle is um, dilated. So if it doesn't have the ability to over-squeeze, in fact, it's barely able to squeeze, it's getting 30% of the ventricle empty, and that's at maximal capability, right? Then if you compromise end-diastolic volume, it can't squeeze more out, so you then compromise stroke volume, and you have a fall in cardiac output and potentially a fall in blood pressure as well. So both states require a relative euvolemia. Yes, in a systolic dysfunction, you probably are going to try to be somewhere between euvolemic and 5 to 10% on the drier side, but not bone dry, as some people think is appropriate. Um, for the reasons we've just described. Right. Um, and a diastolic dysfunction, as we'll get into a little bit more in just a second, likes to have a full ventricle. It can squeeze out a normal stroke volume. And if you were to keep them on the dry side at all, you'd want to be in the 5%, barely dry, because if you get them beyond that again, you're going to completely compromise their stroke volume. Right. So that's the preloads story. So, so the key there, let me just uh, make sure, is that the... Uh, contrary to what, what some may believe, you want to actually 
not under load even the systolic, uh, even the uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, you probably can run slightly drier for those people than you can or want to for the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, but both of them you want to be close to uvulin. That is correct. Okay. So then let's think about heart rate. Um, so in a diastolic dysfunction state or a preserved ejection fraction state, right, you would want the heart rate to be somewhere between normal and slow. You want to have enough time for the, fill, the ventricle to fill. If you got very fast or if you had an increased heart rate, right, then there's less time in diastole, so there's less time for filling of the ventricle. Right. You can be too slow where now you're getting so much filling in a stiff, non-compliant ventricle that you're driving pressure up and can go into acute pulmonary edema related to that. But for the majority of patients, you're going to want them on the normal heart rate to slow side um, because fast, again, is going to compromise uh, ventricular filling. And then tachyarrhythmias, especially if they're supraventricular, like atrial fib, are going to even more compromise because you not only have less time in diastole, but you've lost the atrial kick to fill the ventricle. Right. So in the diastolic side, you want them normal to slightly slower than normal. Okay. Whereas on the systolic side, you want them, again, relatively normal, but if you had to tolerate either increased or decreased, you would tolerate slightly increased heart rates. Think about the person with aortic insufficiency as one of the classic states, where a slightly faster heart rate actually helps protect their cardiac output, um, and they don't suffer enough at um, slightly higher heart rates. Not, we're not talking excessively high here, but slightly right. higher heart rates um, are well tolerated and, in fact, help support cardiac output and flow in the systolic dysfunction patient. So whereas preload was basically the same across them, relative euvolemia, the heart rates are, are essentially the same if you think normal exists across both, right. but your tendency is to keep the preserved ejection fraction on the slow side and to keep the elevated, I'm sorry, the reduced ejection fraction on the high side in terms of heart rate. Great. All right. That's perfect. And then you, you mentioned also thinking about afterload. Correct. So in, in systolic dysfunction, in the reduced ejection fraction, right, the ventricle is weakened. If afterload goes up, it can't squeeze against that. It only fails worse. So afterload has to be reduced in those patients. Um, and that can be very uncomfortable in the perioperative period um, because you may end up having to give vasodilators to a patient who already has relatively borderline blood pressure in how we normally think about blood pressure. We forget that sometimes these severe systolic dysfunction patients are walking around at systolics of 80 and 85, and we get them in the perioperative period and we're uncomfortable at anything under 100, um, and then thus we're uncomfortable giving a dilator. But in fact, in well-controlled setting, if if you have an echo showing you significant systolic dysfunction and you dilate the afterload, the cardiac output will increase because it can now squeeze instead of being further failed by an increased afterload. Right. In the preserved ejection fraction or diastolic side of the discussion, you know, sort of think of it as a bodybuilder, a weightlifter. It, it acutely doesn't care what the afterload is. It can squeeze against it. Right. Chronically, having the afterload reduced is beneficial 
especially if it's one of the hypertrophy disorders, right? Because then that can help remodel the ventricle and help the ventricle be less hypertrophied over time. So afterload is less important in the acute phase of diastolic dysfunction um, and more important in the systolic um, acute uh, management of the patient. Um, Both require reduction of afterload or both benefit from reduction of afterload in the more chronic management. Okay. Now, let me ask, because I think this comes up a lot. So with someone with uh, reduced ejection fraction or systolic failure, uh, who you are managing, and you, as you said, you may want them, you may want to vasodilate them because it can improve cardiac output. Is there a number that you, in terms of a map, let's say, that you start to worry about, even if you have good cardiac output, that you worry about, for example, renal perfusion or... Is it really just about the cardiac output, and to the extent that you can maximize that, you're in good shape? Yeah, we don't really know the perfect answer to the question you're asking. We know that people ought to regulate, and so that if they're used to a map of 45 or 50, then they're going to be in a much better um, ability to tolerate a lower map than if they're used to maps, you know, let's say they have uncontrolled hypertension and they're used to maps of 120, now managing them at a map of 50 is likely to be problematic and will likely induce some AKI, if not more severe renal dysfunction. So I don't think that there's an absolute target. You have to know where the patient has chronically been managed and where they chronically run um, so that you can understand, you know, sort of a 10 to 20 percent difference from that number um, as a ballpark of therapy. Um, But sometimes you almost have to make an empiric decision in in either the systolic or the diastolic patient, right, and say, so we've tried on the systolic patient. We've – our heart rate's 90 to 100. We're not excessively high, but we're on the high side. We've given some fluid, and we think our preload is adequate, and maybe we've re-echoed the patient, and we have some evidence that the volume of the ventricle appears to be adequate as well. Um, But you're still sitting there at relatively low pressures, et cetera. You're going to have to decide, am I going to give an inotrope? Um, or am I going to give a vasodilator and see if the ventricle can pick up? I think most of us in the ICU would start with inotropic therapy right. um, and then think about the vasodilator um, second. If the patient were stable, though, then the correct thing is to think about some very low dose, if their renal function can tolerate it, ACE inhibitor, um, and allow the patient to get some afterload reduction. And you'll see that their blood pressure will actually stay, stay stable the cardiac output has improved if you had a measure of cardiac output. Great. So obviously when we talk about these differences uh, in terms of the effect, the kind of benefit to vasodilation and to maybe lowering afterload, that will that suggests, and you just touched upon it a little bit, some medication therapy that you might uh, want to pursue. So maybe should we touch a little on the drug therapy in the acute setting, obviously uh, in the long-term setting in the outpatient management of these patients you mentioned, we're going to want to, they would all benefit from lowered uh, afterload, the systolic to encourage forward flow and the diastolic to try to prevent the worsening of the disease. But in the acute setting in the ICU or the operating room, what do we want to do in terms of managing these patients uh, pharmacologically? So um, first is just what we've talked about is sort of uh, thinking about heart rate and preload uh, management are are the first steps that you should absolutely do. If you're going to then try to play with afterload or contractility, then you're going to think about some additional medications. On the systolic side, I think people are most comfortable with what that means. The heart doesn't pump well, so people are thinking about things that are inotropes. So epinephrine, uh, dobutamine, 
um, depending upon the scenario, potentially milrinone, these sorts of inotropic uh, agents in order to improve cardiac output and get better squeeze right. in a ventricle that's failed. This could be very important in the intraoperative state where the patient could be getting drugs, anesthetics, that are negative inotropes. And so they may actually benefit from in the ICU, after those drugs are gone, interestingly, they may be on their own catecholamine drip. Their own epinephrine and norepinephrine levels may be elevated. And so they may not need um, inotropic support in the ICU and may actually do well with either no support or that's where adding some vasodilators may be useful while they're on their own endogenous inotropes. The diastolic dysfunction patient, though, needs... Um, something that allows the heart to be um, more compliant, right, and um, less stiff. So the medical term for that is lucitropy, relaxation, and positive lucitropes are beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. So in the severest of the diastolic dysfunction, what we typically see is, is you're trying to manage them at a relative euvolemia. You, they appear to be a little bit dry, blood pressure is a little soft, um, or blood pressure is reasonably preserved, but or, there's evidence of organ malperfusion, maybe low urine output, maybe they're cold in peripheries, et cetera. And you say, well, let me give a small fluid challenge. And they go from being relatively normal to now flash pulmonary edema. You give them a low dose of a diuretic, and now they're back to hypertension. And so you're yo-yoing around where the right volume is. That's a ventricle that can't relax to accept the volume that it needs in order to maintain its appropriate cardiac output. And in that scenario, you'd pick beta blockers or calcium channel blockers uh, to try to get a positive lucitropic effect to get the ventricle to relax. Then you would give some volume as a load, might be 250, 500, to try to partially fill that relaxed ventricle. And in that scenario now, they don't go into flash pulmonary edema, and their uh, capillary refill gets better, and their periphery gets warm, and your output picks back up. So that would be the medical management of the severest forms of diastolic dysfunction. Great. So if you were choosing a vasopressor for diastolic dysfunction, would something like phenylephrine be a good choice since it is not going to raise your heart rate and will you know, help in improve your afterload? Yeah, I think it's a little more complex than that. Um, you, clearly, epinephrine would not make a lot of sense in terms of kicking the ventricle and trying to make it overwork in a ventricle that's already overworking. Right. Um, but the reason I, I balk a little bit at just endorsing phenylephrine is, is you know, splanchnic blood flow is better under levofed than it is. There is beta-dependent splanchnic dil dilatation. Mm -hmm. um, I think whether the patient is septic or only under an anesthetic that's producing some variation or they've acutely hemorrhaged. So I think it's a little more complex that there's not necessarily a right inotrope in these patients. I would tend in most scenarios, though, to lean towards a levofed, mm -hmm. um, right? 90% of patients who get levofed actually have a slowing of heart rate if you're using it to correct hypotension. Only 10% actually get a raise in a heart rate. So, And phenylephrine, if you're thinking about a lot of the vasodilatory states, in particular septic states, there is a relative phenylephrine resistance and then you're almost wasting your time titrating up a drug, never meeting your target map, allowing the patient to stay underperfused um, for a prolonged period of time until you finally decide, well, maybe I should shift to something slightly more potent. So right. I would tend to lean towards levofed, but you could make a case in some scenarios that phenylephrine made sense. Yeah, so levofed is definitely my uh, vasopressor of choice for these as well. 
Do you have uh, any opinion one way or the other on using peripheral dose levofed? Some people are, are more comfortable with that these days and others still feel like they really want a central line if they're going to be running levofed for any prolonged period of time. Yeah, I think the data continues to um, grow in a one-sided direction, which is that central lines are not needed and that if you use uh, two things are necessary. Peripheral concentrations of the drug, you can't mix central concentrations and give peripherally. Right. And then you have to have an infiltration protocol. And if you do both, then even the cases of infiltration have not led to significant harm to patients, um, according to the few studies that have looked. And then it's very safe to give peripheral concentrations. Um, at least in the, um, I think, intraop and perioperative state. Um, you know, it may or may not be the same in an emergency room or in some other setting. So I want to be careful there and not make a global statement. But clearly, there's been uh, studies that have looked at intra-op and post-op in an ICU setting. Uh, if you can avoid a central line, longer to get it in, complications of placement, complications of it being present. And a lot of these patients need pressors for, you know, 8 to 12 hours right. for which you've now wasted a lot of resources to get a central line and potentially produced additional complications. Absolutely. And so the, when you mention uh, an infiltration protocol here, uh, I believe what we have is fentolamine. It comes when you order from the pharmacy in four or five uh, syringes and you inject each one kind of in a periphery around where the infiltration took place. And so that's a way to deal with an infiltration. Correct. And there are published online many of these uh, infiltration protocols depending upon what drug is infiltrated, but right. you are correct. Great. And I want to just go back to when we, you were mentioning the, the systolic or the reduced ejection fraction and the idea that medications such as dobutamine or milrinone might be good choices. Do you use? Do you have in your head an idea? Well, if the systemic pressure was low enough, I, I you know kind of below this, I would go first to an epinephrine. But if it was high enough, I would go first to a milrinone or a dobutamine. Obviously, acknowledging that those two medications, dobutamine and milrinone, can lower systemic pressure while they increase inotropy. Yeah, well, epi can as well, right, from a beta-2 peripheral effect. So sometimes you can be fooled and think you're going to help. And I think my primary presser, if you were to just think about all systolic pa dysfunction patients, all reduced ejection mm -hmm. fraction function patients, would be epi. I think as an anesthesiologist very and as an intensivist, very comfortable with the use and titration. Yep. I tend not to be a big dobutamine user if the patient has a history of um, – reduced ejection fraction, so HEF-REF, right. has had several admissions and has gotten what we used to call double-D therapy, dobutamine and dopamine, as a way of enhancing their inotropy, um, then, and they've tolerated that, then, yeah, I lean towards some do dobutamine in those patients that have a history of having tolerated it and benefited from it. Okay. Um, I tend, and I think everybody's a little different, to reserve the milrinone. In, in my hands, it's more beneficial in the scenario where the person has systolic dysfunction, and I'm also seeing problems with the RV and or PA pressures, and I'm trying to sort of manage both now a right heart problem and a left heart problem. Right. Um, and very frequently, as I think you are aware in those patients, you will put them on milrinone, and you'll see an improvement in the right side. You'll see an improvement in right-to-left blood flow, but the systemic pressure will be lower because of the vasodilatory. And then you end up having to add something to try to correct the profound vasodilatation. Right. And there are people who go back to levofed. I think more and more people are trying to titrate vasopressin and milrinone simultaneously in those patients in order to try to get um, an unloaded right heart, a full left heart, and the right amount of vasoconstriction 
constriction peripherally without overdoing it. Right. Makes sense. All right. Perfect. Thank you. So we've covered a lot of great stuff. Is there anything you think important here that we haven't hit on yet that we should add? No, I would just want to reiterate again um, that uh, that if you see a chart that says congestive heart failure, try not to just move that along and keep saying congestive heart failure. Spend a little time thinking about what they really had, seeing if you can research what they had either in the chart or by talking to the patient and the family or potentially calling their primary physician, cardiologist, and then start documenting HEFREF and HEFPEF if that's what they really have uh, because you set the stage for the next person not to make a mistake and you're passing on now tips already about physiology and treatment and management of the patient if you can get the diagnosis correct. Perfect. I think that's really important. Dr. Dorman, thank you so much for coming on. This has been great, and I'm sure it'll be really helpful for our listeners. I hope so. Jed, thanks for inviting me today. All right. That was fantastic. Really great to have Dr. Dorman here uh, and all his expertise to share. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to go to the website, accrac.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave a comment or a question. And the advantage of that, of leaving it there, is that everyone else can see your questions and can help answer them or can ask additional questions and learn from your comments. If you have uh, comments directly from me, of course, you can email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C dot com. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you are interested in helping support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash ACRAC where you can pledge even just a dollar or two, which makes a big difference and goes toward helping support the making of the show. We would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Todd Dorman, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.